This is the MLW Radio Network. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening and good night. My name is Thomas and what's your name? Uh, I'm Alan. Alan. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. We're brothers. That's right. Yeah. yeah the mother, same mother and father. Your room was... Oh, we shared a room. Shared a room. We right. shared a room. thought I knew your face. Yeah, we go maybe? way back, mate. Yeah. yeah. We should do a podcast then. Uh, we have. We do, we do a podcast. We do a podcast. What's it called? The Brocast. Yeah, that was planned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what do we do? Well, we cover all different things in the world of pop culture. We're talking about comic books, we're talking about professional wrestling, and we're talking about movies. Go back and watch classic retro wrestling events, the likes of WWE, WCW, and if you do like that, you can check us out on Apple iTunes, also on Podbean, Anchor, and on Podknife. Also check us out on Twitter, at The Broadcast. That's B-R-O. Okay, yeah, hey, the ending. Hey, it's all right. Good on you. Yeah. Instagram also at the Broadcast Podcast. Remember, we don't spell it with a C. We spell it with a K. Sorry, mate. Take it easy. Everyone knows a lot of things can change in the span of 10 years. But when it comes to professional wrestling podcasting, one thing is still guaranteed. The Shining Wizards is the only place to get all the latest wrestling news, interviews with the greatest guests, and of course, tons of laughs in discussing the world of wrestling. The show is still available on Monday nights at 7 p.m. East on RantDMRadio.com and Rant Entertainment Media on the TuneIn app. And it's still available on all podcasting platforms. To check us out, head over to ShiningWizards.com where it's still wrestling talk and talk about wrestling. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? It's your boy Blackheart, the head honcho off the top roast podcast. If you love independent and professional wrestling and like all the juicy gossip of the wrestling industry, then look no further than here. OTTR headquarters. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitch, and Facebook groups, and whatever it is you get your podcast from with our with our latest last week of wrestling, after darts, under bosses hard taste, and now our new upcoming trivia game show wrestling every coming soon so if you like what you see you love professional wrestling you love independent wrestling you love everything about wrestling just yourself give us a tune you know you will not regret it blackheart out Welcome to another episode of Overbooked. My name is Mike Freeland, and as you know, we are reading the Sabu book, Scars, Silence, and Superglue, the story of Terry Brunk. We've read the first eight chapters. Now let's go ahead and let's jump into chapter nine. Chapter nine is entitled New Japan Jump. Now come April of 95, after being scheduled for a three-way dance for the ECW World Tag Team titles with Taz, I publicly no-showed the event to accept a booking in Japan for New Japan Pro Wrestling. Some may recall Paul Heyman publicly and legitimately firing me at the ECW event. This is the perfect opportunity to explain exactly why. My career wrestling in Japan at this point with FMW was huge. I was only wrestling once every so often for ECW, and this is why I chose Japan over ECW. The thing about it was, though, if I was going to work a match for FMW, I may have thought twice. However, it was New Japan calling, and I had to make a really hard decision. With New Japan looking to give me a contract, I accepted and quickly made me double book for two very big events. You can't blame a guy for wanting to make a living. In New Japan, for one, the money was better, much better. 
I'm talking money like five times better than what ECW was bringing me in to pay. New Japan sold out stadiums. Now, while I was wrestling for all time for FMW, I was in and out of ECW, working for them in America and Onita in Japan. But I didn't quite leave Onita high and dry. He, we, he and I were always still good, and he was always good to me. Actually, I have a story about my jump from FMW to New Japan before I decided to no-show the ECW show. Professionally, I didn't really like being the FMW Junior Heavyweight Champion. The division was very exciting, don't get me wrong, but as a junior heavyweight, I would never be considered a top guy there because I was never working in the main event. Well, to up my game as FMW contracts would work, I was about to let expire. I was going to ask for the move up to the heavyweight division, but I also got a call from Tiger, a famous New Japan referee who had handled all the bookings for the company, just to see what my chances were, perhaps maybe down the road even. I wasn't even sure, honestly, if they would even know who I was, but boy, was I wrong. I found out they knew exactly who I was, and Tiger told me they were totally interested in moving me up because I was getting exposure in both ECW in the United States and also in Japan with FMW. Tiger said he wanted to talk with me about some title uh, commitments, but he also had to talk to the title committee, and he'd get right back to me with an offer. I couldn't believe it. I didn't have to wait for very long. Tiger called me right back and offered me a contract practically on the spot, then came the hard part, having to give my two-week notice. FMW let me be. They put me on the map. I mean, I know they'd helped me get over as well, but the idea of leaving them was a little scary to me. They were practically my family. In fact, with my uncle still in the locker room, they were family. I'm sure you can all relate to this, working somewhere you like, but having to leave all the people that you worked with day in and day out for somewhere else. The decision itself was really a no-brainer. The money was way, way, way too good to pass up in New Japan, and the potential to work in main events was there. I was afraid at first that accepting the offer, people in FMW might think that I was a sellout or maybe that my move was somehow disrespectful to them. So, as I walked into the venue at FMW for the show that afternoon, I was walking on eggshells. The first person I saw was one of the young boys. Hey man, where's the sheik? I asked. The young boy nodded. He didn't speak very good English, but acknowledged he knew and urged me to follow him. When I came around the corner in this small arena, it was the Sheik, and he was talking to Anita. I stopped following the young boy a second and waved him on to say I didn't need him anymore. He understood. While collecting my thoughts on how I was going to explain my jumping to New Japan, I listened to them talk for a moment. Interestingly enough, my uncle was discussing a deal for me with the head of FMW, Onita himself. It was then that I realized that I was actually about to walk in during a negotiation in the dressing room to tell them I was actually going to be leaving. Onita respected the Sheik. Abdul the Butcher was booking for some of the American wrestlers for a number of years. He assigned Onita as a young boy to help take care of the Sheik back when he was doing tours for Giant Baba's All Japan Pro Wrestling. Onita used to actually carry the Sheik's bags, bring him his meals, and even lace up his boots before matches. Therefore, I knew that Anita would listen to what my uncle had to say and give him the very best deal that he could offer. Now, the problem with this situation was the very best FMW had to offer wouldn't even compare to what they were offering me in New Japan. I knew that I was going to have to turn down their very best offer.
I took a deep breath and I walked around the corner. Speaking of the devil himself, my uncle said, here he is. I nodded and then reluctantly explained my situation. Onita was startled at first, but he didn't want to hold me back at all. He knew New Japan Pro Wrestling would really help me take my game to the next level and that I had the advantage and a great opportunity. At this point, the best way I could explain the two companies in terms of American-style wrestling is that FMW was much like a Ring of Honor, and New Japan was like working for the WWF. There was really no comparison. Onita shook my hand and bowed. I had his blessing. Then I looked over my uncle. He was a man of few words, and I was worried at first that he might have not liked the idea. I didn't consult with him about the situation. He then asked me, You getting more money? Yeah, I said. Good, he said, because then you can send me some once you get there. If the sheik had said, no, you aren't taking it, I probably wouldn't have gone. Neither, but it was for the best. Everything turned out fine. They both seemed far happier for me than I had ever hoped for, and I'm glad. Well, I'm glad I did it. If I wasn't double-crossed at all, I wasn't going to show up at New Japan and then shit all over FMW and put the other promotion over. I made the jump with a blessing. Before leaving ECW officially in the States, I made my New Japan debut on January 4th of 95 in the world-famous Tokyo Dome. The place was a monster. Speaking of monsters, in my very first match, they had me teamed up with Masahiro Chono, and they put us over against Junto Harate and the great Tsami. They were great, too. It was an honor to be placed in the same match with those guys. After that, Chono and I teamed up again on several cards, taking on other memorable opponents. Making the decision to leave FMW was tough, though. I was out on my own, in a strange big world. Leaving my uncle's side at FMW was definitely part of my initial hesitation. But deep down, I knew that I always have a home on Onita's promotion. But I had to factor in the idea that it wasn't going to be for long before Hyai would be aged out. And I was right. New Japan debut. Now, a few months into my first day with New Japan, I was given the opportunity to highlight my abilities on a much larger level than ever before. They booked me to compete for the most important lightweight championship title in the world. It was the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Championship. On May 3rd, 95, I defeated Kamenomoto in the Fungato Dome in Japan, winning the title with the Arabian Press Moonsault. Just for the record, it was a good match, but he was a dickhead. Now, I don't say that for anyone except for certain people. New Japan is where I wanted to be. And Komoto is one of the guys that was setting the right tone right off the bat for me to start our program. He was an asshole. His ways made me think that I might not be working with anyone else in the New Japan locker room. He figured that since I was a junior heavyweight champion, he wasn't going to sell any of my moves. After our first match, I went up to Saito, an older wrestler I knew from the States. How did it go? Saito said. All right, but that son of a bitch didn't want to sell any of my shit. Saito shook his head. He took a moment to find the right words. Then he finally said, next time, make him sell it. Make him, I said. You make him work with you. If he doesn't, you make him sell it. You understand? He asked me. I think so. Don't think. If he does it again, tell him not to and make him not. Well, the next night I was out of the ring and he tried something on me. He tried stretching me. Sayetsu's words ran through my head again. Don't tell him. 
Make him. I balled up my fist and punched him right in the face. He went down. He tried to stiffen up on me again. I just let him have it again and took it home. Now the next night, I didn't even wait for his bullshit. I just fucking beat him. I beat the fuck out of him. I beat that guy right from the get-go. I beat the shit right out of him. At the end of the match, I went to shake his hand, and he slapped my mouth so hard, I almost broke my jaw again. He knew he hit me too hard and jumped out of the ring immediately. Not even trying to make things look good, I ran right after him. He took off running down the aisle, right into the locker room. I finally caught up to him in the dressing room, and that pussy said, Sorry, it was an accident. I thought about kicking his teeth in again or kicking his ass, but I figured that would just get me kicked off the tour. So I decided against it. Kanto Mato never tried anything with me again after that, and it didn't change what I thought about him. I didn't like him then, and I don't like him now. Karma finally came up to that prick, and you know what? He had to finally suck it up and drop his title to me in May of 95 despite the fact that there were a handful of cocksuckers in New Japan locker room just like him. The promotion itself decided to put me over big. But I didn't have much time to enjoy it, though. Right as my career was taking off in New Japan, my uncle was coming to a screeching halt. Two days after winning the IWGP Junior Heavyweight title, the Sheik's last big show was about to come. Sheik's last match was against Terry Funk at the Kawasaki Stadium. It was like any other. No real liberties were taken. They had worked hard a number of times before, but this time in his career, Sheik's finite number of bumps just started to catch up with him. After the show, my uncle was waiting for a cab, and his left arm went numb. He tried to shake it off, but after a few seconds later, he was having difficulty breathing. After that, he had someone, he had some persons help him. He started to have scary chest pains. While he was in the cab, he actually had to change his destination. You see, the Sheik was supposed to meet me, and we were going to go head off to the airport together to leave the country, working for another promotion I was staying at. We were at a different hotel, and it was a good distance away. His chest pains got out of control. At about this time, he was supposed to be picking me up, but three attendants were picking him up and putting him on a hospital gurney. Oh, being that stubborn man that he was, it's a good thing he didn't just have to do it by himself. As hypocritical as it may sound coming from me, he did right going to the hospital. We both thought the same way. Hospitals went against our natural way of thinking. But when it came to injuries like this, especially a heart attack, it isn't fixable with superglue. After waiting for a while for my uncle to show up, I became impatient and called Onita. He just got the news himself that Sheik had been rushed to the emergency room. My stomach dropped. Is that it? Is he gone? I didn't even get a chance to say goodbye. I called for another taxi. When I got to the hospital, I ran to the emergency room and patted myself on the chest and pointed. They rushed me to a cubicle surrounded by curtains. Some nurses and a doctor were there working on him. He had a mask over his mouth for breathing, and he was hooked up to a machine. It wasn't long before I learned that the Sheik, in fact, suffered a heart attack. After his match, waiting for the cab. There was nothing I can do but sit and wait. When they showed me out of the waiting room, there was some kind of baseball game replaying on the television. I couldn't help but wonder if it was the bottom of the ninth. But the Sheik and I knew that he was a fighter. Was there some kind of correlation to this? If anyone could pull off a major play and get back in the game, it was him. I got him. I paced more and more. And then I thought of his wife, his family, 
They have no idea what's going on. I rushed down the hall and called my Aunt Joyce on a payphone in the lobby. We barely spoke. I told her the bare minimum, and she was off. She immediately grabbed the next flight to Japan, but wouldn't be there for almost a day. The first night was rough. He came out of it. I sat by his bed after they told me that I could. I didn't do much of anything but just listen to him breathe. My eyes hurt. I was so exhausted, even to sleep. The next few days were touch and go. Eventually, he came through all of it, but he couldn't speak at first. He nodded and acknowledged that I was there, but then was in and out. When it was all said and done, he was okay, but they told him that he was finished. It was then they gave my uncle his death sentence. You can never wrestle again. So around that time, my career was taking off like never before. My teacher had almost died, and his life almost came to an end. In fact, his wrestling career did. So... I took a few shots here and there for another three years or so, but he couldn't really travel with me. No real matches anymore. His heart just couldn't handle it. He had one hell of a run, though, from 1950 to 1995 or so, and some small spot appearances until 1998. He just kept on going until his body wouldn't let him anymore. Now that's dedication. I wrestled a shitload of matches in New Japan in 95, and I never looked back. Working what was about a total of 65 dates for the number one promotion in the land of the rising sun. Now, as I mentioned before, on May 3rd of 95 in the Funkano Dome, I won the IWGP Junior Heavyweight title. After the fiasco with my uncle's health scare had calmed down for a little while, I still wasn't in the best mindset. My uncle was my mentor. He was my teacher. He was my friend. And losing him being with me was horrible. I learned so much from him. With my jump to New Japan, he suggested that I switch my ring entrance gear to look more sinister. His idea was to change the turban. I was wearing to something like his. After that, he actually gave me one of his own personal collections. Changing from the cheap, shitty turban to a bunch of very nice, ornate ones was definitely of my uncle's gratitude. Then came June 12th of 95 in Osaka. I was to defend the IWGP junior heavyweight title against Black Tiger II, a.k.a. Eddie Guerrero in a mask. Some of you may have seen this clip before, but as it's listed online as being part of the worst fan wrestler interactions of all time, here's really what happened. On my way to the ring, a fan decided to get up too close and personal with me. Taking home a souvenir at my expense was really bad timing, especially when that object was something given to me by someone special who literally almost just died. This fan had the bright idea to steal my headdress right off my head while I was walking to the ring for my match. Pretty ballsy. That was like stealing Superman's cape. I lost it, and I'll admit it. I was insulted, and I reacted. I went nuts. I hoped over the barricade, and I went over this guy who had taken my uncle's head wrap and my honor. I couldn't let someone steal that from me live on TV. That would set a bad precedent. I decided right after that that if a fan was ever going to leave the arena with a present for me that night, they were going to have to leave with a gift receipt. The receipt was going to be a document in the form of an elbow, some right hands, and the best advice I could ever tell you is this. You don't take Hogan's bandana, you don't steal Austin's beer, you don't cut Hacksaw's 2 by 4 in half, and you don't steal Jake's snake. And no matter what you do, you absolutely don't steal Sabu's motherfucking turban. When interacting with a wrestler who is used to fighting in exploding barbed wire matches, 
I think it's pretty safe to say it's probably isn't the best idea to piss them off. I mean, yeah, if you choose to steal from a wrestler, you risk them fighting back. But attacking a particular one who seemingly isn't afraid to injure himself permanently to get the job done is probably an even worse decision. Now, in the end, I think this fan just wasn't even thinking at all. Either that or he was maybe suicidal and had some reason to leave the arena alive that night. So after the fans got handcuffed and taken away, I got my turban, the headdress, and I went flying. Seconds later, I was flying too. I jumped over the guardrail, dove right over in a brilliant rocket scientist. I figured security would quickly break it up, but I guessed I would have left a little bit too much credit for them. However, security was nowhere to be found, so I kept beating the shit out of him, wanting it to stop, but no security would even come over and help the man in the audience, and no one tried to stop me. I didn't get my turban back as I was punching him. I couldn't seem to figure out where he had hit it, and I knew there wasn't time to strip search him before the match. So knowing it was gone, I decided to get my share of welts in on the fan's skull, so at least... I knew his head would hurt way too much to ever think about wearing the headdress anytime soon. As quickly as the fight started, it was all over. I made my way to the ring that night. When I got there, Eddie was laughing. He said from underneath the mask that he saw the whole thing, and it was quite possibly one of the most entertaining things. And a guy actually made the wrong decision and got beat up. But then Eddie mentioned something else. I'd actually beat up the wrong guy. In looking back at the tape, Eddie may have been right. I may have grabbed the wrong guy. After our match, some poor dude who had woken up at a ringside probably had no clue why he was seeing so many stars. Man, if that happened, wow. I was later back in Tokyo Dome on June the 14th of 95 in front of a huge house crowd. Our rematch for my IWGP Heavyweight Championship match was all set. This time it was title for title bout. Well, against Koji Kanemoto's newly won UWA World Welterweight Championship was on the line. In the end, I dropped the belt back to him. Holding the IWGP Junior Heavyweight title was great for me, even if I only held it for a short time. It gave me even more credibility and continued my growing in the brand. That wasn't the only gold that I'd hold during the tour. However, the UWA closed up shop in 95. Grand Hamada bought the UWA World Junior Lightweight Heavyweight title for himself from Mexico all the way to Japan. The UWA World Junior Lightweight Heavyweight Championship is a prestigious title that was always exclusively defended in Mexico for a promotion called Universal Wrestling Association. Now, UWA ran from 75 to 95, but upon bringing Hamada in for this Japanese tour, Japan adopted the Mexican belt for a period of time. It was since then returned to Mexico, where it is now defended on the independent circuit. The UWA was a large promotion and pretty internationally known, so they decided to have a number of wrestlers work a series of shots at the straps during our tour in Japan. I was one of those wrestlers. This program in itself was very odd. A Mexican championship being defended in Japan? Now that wasn't a normal thing, so Hamada's run promised to get a lot of attention from the sheets. It was also good for me to have this series of matches with him. While ECW was still going on in America without me, it was pretty cool to be an American wrestler competing for a Mexican title in Japan's promotion. Eating a bowl full of Italian spaghetti, Neapolitan ice cream before the bout, 
I figured if I threw in some European uppercuts and some side Russian leg sweeps into our match, people would really think I could be anywhere. So, at the arena, it was such a weird matchup that many more eyes were on me than usual, and I won the UWA World Junior Lightweight Heavyweight title. Meanwhile, back in America, I can't lie, I heard ECW was doing well in the States, and it's possible I lost some of my sleep on the decision about the double booking, ECW or New Japan. Did I pick the right one? While I was winning some titles in Japan and making some great money, well, I wondered if all of that had happened. What would happen if I would have stayed in the States? Making a big decision like this was always stressful for me. Now, in hindsight, though, for me, I think I made the right one. After a, after unintentionally double booking myself, I felt that I really had to choose New Japan date over another ECW date. For one, the difference in pay was substantial. I was making $6,000 a match in New Japan compared to $1,000 I would have made for ECW. But see, that wasn't all. I talked to an international guy like Benoit and Malinka who all agreed and offered the same advice. They told me the decision was a no-brainer. Turning down the entire tour with Japan instead of working a spot show? That'd be crazy. It wasn't even the money difference between the double booking shows. It was quality and quantity. ECW was really catching on, but it was still really small. They offered only a handful of paydays in America versus a whole bunch of bigger guarantee shows overseas with much bigger promotions, such as New Japan. Yeah, I was pissed about how, how Paul Heyman handled it. Instead of changing something around, he took it personal and decided to bury me on live TV. He could have easily said I was out with an injury or even said there was just a change on the card, but he decided to take the low road. He got in the ring and told fans that I chose somewhere else to go, and I basically ditched them. Only months after getting fired from ECW in the United States in 1995, I heard the ECW fans were being brainwashed by Paul to cover his ass for not being able to produce me at the moment. He continued to talk trash about me in commentary for weeks. He said I was a total sellout and disloyal to the American wrestling fans. The fans ate it up at the time. The weird thing about all this was that before even I missed the event, we already had figured this out. I had worked things out with him so I could keep my commitments with New Japan and then come back to the States and work for him. However, I think Paul E. got jealous the fact that ECW wasn't my first priority. And he also felt like it was his decision to bury me. And it was a priority to bury me. If you watch any of the old tapes in the summer of 95, you can constantly hear crowds in ECW chanting, Fuck Sabu. Fuck Sabu. Sabu sucks. It's true the smarter demographic of fans had read everything they wanted to hear about my departure and drank Paul's Kool-Aid. But the negative reaction to my void didn't mean that they didn't like me. It meant that I was just severely missed. Some of the same imitation, they say, is a sneerest form of flattery. In this case, I think those same people would say imitation was a serious form of desperation. In my absence, ECW scrambled to fill all my voids to satisfy the hunger fans had for my style. Many of the boys took to imitating some of the things that I did in the ring to try to win over the crowd. That was not enough for Paul Heyman. Pablo Marquez, an ECW enhancement wrestler who usually wrestled under the name El Porto Ricano, was given back the gimmick when they found him with that he was impersonating me on the indies. 
Back in his old persona, he became Ubis again, and this was basically Sabu spelled backwards. This gimmick was similar to mine, but also it was like a bizarro Superman version, a twisted rendition of my long hair, my headdress, my baggy pants, and my arm tape. Now, I'd actually worked with Pablo and even helped to train him at some point, so there was no real heat there. I honestly didn't care that he was playing the part. It just looked like me. It looked like gimmick infringement. And as a payday for a kid who was always trying to get his name alive and stay true, it wasn't really fair. But honestly, he wasn't even on my radar. I was cool with it. Do you know why Vince never mentioned WCW or WWF programming? That's because he felt that actually promoting his competition in some degree gave them exposure. It was a credibility issue. He felt like it was giving them play. Well, one could argue that ECW using UBUS on their program was actually keeping my name alive in America when I wasn't there for the brand at all. This was good and left the door open for a possible and eventual return for me, at least somewhere. My name was alive in ECW, but I was free from ECW responsibilities and commitments. In the meanwhile, I was able to devote all of my focus on my tour in Japan. Because of this, my hard work was starting to pay off. After working that program with Grand Hamada, our series of matches ended with me defeating him for the UWA World Junior Lightweight Heavyweight Championship on November 23rd of 95. With my tour appearances coming to an end, I lost the Mexican strap to Nagata in Japan. Coming December 11th of 95 in Osaka, I made my final appearance with New Japan tagging with Hiro Saito, defeating Dean Malenko in Wild Pegasus. When my NJPW tour ended, I continued to work some more dates in Japan. Now, during this period of time, I picked up some more dates with Onita and had some great matches with FMW, rising star by the name of Hayabusa, before I returned back to the States. When I was young, I went and I saw the Sheik wrestle in Detroit, and the building felt completely moved with all the energy from him in the ring. Sheik was wrestling a lot of different people from Vince Sr. And on that night, it was like a number two baby face he was. I couldn't believe my eyes. The Sheik destroyed him in three minutes. I didn't know how it worked back then, but I had a hunch wrestling was fake. After seeing what I believe was the Sheik had an exception to the rule. He was the one who had to be real. That night actually made me want to become a professional wrestler, and it planted the seeds that would eventually lead me into the ring. The Sheik was one of the greatest villains of all time, and he was very responsible for ushering in what would eventually be known as hardcore wrestling. He was the master. And then there was Terry Funk, and eventually the master student, which was me, Sabu. Sheik booked me in Detroit for his shows in Cobo Hall in Detroit. It was real life. Sheik was often said to have good, not have really good payoffs. Some of the boys, however, always treated him well, and he booked me for big-time wrestling, and he always made sure I had food and transportation and everything I needed. In Georgia Championship Wrestling, the Sheik and I crossed paths. I was eventually lucky enough to be able to call the Sheik both a friend and an opponent, and over time, he had shadowed me, and he befriended, and that's how I got the name Sabu. I first met Sabu on a wrestling tour for the Bearman in Ontario. The moment I saw Sabu step into the ring, I knew that he had it and was eventually going to make a name for himself. The Sheik trained him well. He followed his uncle's lead on how to act inside and outside of the ring, 
and Sabu put his body on the line every single time, no matter how many fans were in attendance. What a person to be able to learn from. Sheik was funny because he stayed in character 24-7. Sometimes they would come and stay with me when they were in Florida. If we went out to eat after a show, the Sheik would insist on paying and make Sabu run out to the car. Then Sabu would return and break out these big bags of money filled with 20s. The Sheik would pick through the cash slowly so all the employees could see. He wanted to take out one or two bills at a time to pay the tab, then send the rest of the money back to his nephew. Sabu always would take care of his uncle. He did whatever he asked, and I'm sure that a lot of the Sheik's wrestling lifestyle wasn't just gimmick. It was life itself. Sabu and I worked together in FMW, and I saw the sacrifices that he had made firsthand. When Paul Heyman brought him in for ECW, he already made a name for himself worldwide, and he soared to even newer heights. Come WCW, both JJ and I knew he would have the biggest thing there, and they got the approval. However, that was too bad that somebody like him got messed up in a contract before it could even happen. That person was an asshole. All I can say is, like a handful of great talents out there, Sabu got screwed by the business. It's a shame that the originator of a lot of things you see in American pro wrestling today was skipped over and not given his due. Sabu deserved a contract at that time. Sabu is the man. He is the only guy who we ever remember as the innovator of super hardcore. That was comments from Kevin Sullivan. That's going to do it for Chapter 9. I feel like this chapter was fascinating because, you know, we found out exactly why Sabu left uh, ECW and decided to work for New Japan and for FMW. The money was just better overseas. He loved and was dedicated to FMW because of the relationship and the commitments he had with his uncle. He was loyal to New Japan because of the relationships that he'd built and for the fact that his uncle spoke up for him. You know, loyalty is a lot to Sabu, and it's not just about money, but I mean, let's be honest, you guys, money is a big deal. I mean, whatever profession you're in, if you're making X amount of dollars with one company and another company wants to offer you more, that definitely plays a huge factor. And as humble as Sabu is, we still got to eat. You still got to take care of yourself. There's still uh, a lot of things that you need to do. And Sabu was just trying to do the best thing that he could do and still be loyal to his uncle as well and not show any level of disrespect. You know, and it's a shame that Polly did what Polly did, but Polly's also a businessman and he had to play it off as if Sabu was this evil man just to kind of keep the ECW brand going. It was it was us versus the world, as Paul would often say, and that definitely fit the moniker of this storyline. But to continue to bury Sabu on TV in commentary week and week and week out, I don't think that was such a good idea. It was interesting to hear about the fan interaction, about the turban getting taken off of his head and the fan, and how the fact that he may have well beat up the wrong guy. Interesting. Guys, that is my thoughts on Chapter 9. I loved Chapter 9. I thought it was a great chapter. Hope you guys are enjoying it too. Once again, I'm trying to post these as frequently as I can. But once again, continue to follow me on social media. I am at Mike Freeland, M-I-K-E-F-R-E-L-A-N-D. Let me know what you think about the chapter, what your thoughts are. And I will talk to you the next time when we do Overbooked. We'll be covering Chapter 10, which is the WCW days. Hmm. Wonder what's going to be said in that one. But until then, we'll catch you next time on Overbooked.